interview with producer Marsha Posner-Williams. Stay tuned. Hello once again, and welcome to the TV series finale podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Kimball. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, thanks so much for joining me once again. And if you're new to the show, I want you to know that this show is part of tvseriesfinale.com. Now, that's a website that's devoted to TV show cancellation news, last episodes, and reunions. The networks keep canceling shows like crazy, if you haven't noticed, and that's at least in part what's kept me from producing podcasts for a while. But I want to thank you personally for sticking around. It's certainly been too long since I conducted this particular interview with producer Marsha Posner-Williams. I'm bringing it to you now, though, and you're in for a real treat. Marsha has had a very impressive career in Hollywood and has worked on a wide variety of shows over the years like Amen, Night Court, Good Grief, Hail to the Chief, and The Golden Girls. But one of Marsha's favorites is Soap, the groundbreaking sitcom from the late 1970s about two sisters and their crazy families from Connecticut. The series showcased some of the sharpest writing and sitcom acting in television history. Marsha essentially got her start on Soap as an assistant to creator Susan Harris and is one of the few people who worked on the show from the very beginning to the very end. Marsha has a great deal of fondness for her experience working on the show and it was my great pleasure to discuss Soap with her. So, without further ado, here now is part one of my interview with Marsha Posner-Williams. Right. Well, let's kind of start at the beginning. And how did you get started in television? I was very um, motivated to work in the television business since I was probably five years old. And I grew up in Arizona. And when I was 22, I think it was, it's so long ago, I can't really remember, I decided to make the pilgrimage to Hollywood. And it was, it took me three tries to actually make it and stay here. But once I made it, uh, after two years of terrible struggling, which is a whole other interview, I finally got a call one night from a secretary working at MGM Studios on a television show called The Practice, starring Danny Thomas. Oh, sure. Okay. Now, mind you, I'm this little girl from Arizona, and I'm getting a call from MGM Studios, Danny Thomas, and I went crazy. She said, you don't know us and we don't know you, but we're starting the second season of this show starring Danny Thomas and the creator of the show, a guy named Steve Gordon, is flying out from New York for four weeks to just help kick off the series, you know, the second uh, season. Right. And we need a secretary to work with him just for four weeks. And she said, I, it was too late to call a temporary employment agency, so I called a girlfriend of mine and said, do you know anybody who can type really, really fast? And she said, yes, call Marsha Posner. So she said to me, so can you start Monday for four weeks only at $200 a week plus overtime? And I said, yes, I'm there. Even though, understand, I had so many job offers in Arizona to be a secretary because I have uh, an ability to type 120 words a minute. Wow. But I knew in Arizona I could stay there and be safe, but always wonder the rest of my life what would have happened if I'd had the guts enough 
to pursue what I really wanted to pursue, right. which was the television business. Right. So I thought, thankfully, I was smart enough to realize, even though I didn't want to be a secretary, you have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. Get your foot in the door. So I started working on, for him, and the four weeks turned into four months because mm-hmm. he left, but the executive producer got rid of his secretary. They moved me into the executive producer's secretary, and then at the end of four months, the show got canceled. Okay. So I got a layoff notice from the studio, but the producer of the show, Tony Thomas, mm-hmm. Danny's son, right. came to me and said, I know you got a layoff notice, but forget that. My partner and I have formed our own company, and you're coming with us. Wonderful. And with, Tom- and with Thomas Harris was born in July of 1970. Uh, no, I started with Danny in July 1976, and then... Uh, soap aired in September of '77. Right. So we, you know, we got uh, they started their company several months before that because we actually soap was not the first show they did. They did a series called "Loves Me, Loves Me Not." Well, a series, I should say, was I think seven episodes. Okay. Um, and that starred Susan Day and Ken Gilman, and that didn't, you know, didn't go into further pickups or anything, and. The next thing I know, we're, they're casting for this show called Soap. So that's how I got my career started, and that's how wow. Soap started. Wow. So, and, and the story goes from there. So was, were you there when Soap was being created, or, or did they already kind of have the concept in mind? You know, I'm not positive about that because I was just a lowly person on the totem pole. Right. Um, But I can tell you that being the secretary to Susan Harris, which is what I became, when Soap uh, started going, could not have been a more unbelievable job because Susan used to type some of her scenes, she used to handwrite some of her scenes, and back in the day, you know, it was typewriters, not computers, so there was a lot of scratch-outs and XXX over things, and so when she would be done with something, she would just hand it to me, and then I would type it in pure, you know, sitcom form. Well, I would be the first one to read what this brilliant writer had written. Yeah. So it was just great. It was just an amazing year, the first year of soap for me to have that experience. Sure, sure. Now, I've heard historians, TV historians, often describe soap as a parody of soap operas, but I've always heard, I think through interviews with Susan, that it was more conceived as a sitcom that was going to have ongoing storylines, and it wasn't created just to parody soap operas. Does that does that sound accurate? That sounds completely accurate. I never thought of it, and I myself, having been one of the very few people that was fortunate enough to work on every single episode from the pilot to the end, right. had never described the show as a parody of a soap opera. It just happens to be a comedy one of the first comedies um, that had a continuing storyline and had as many running characters as it did. Right. Because, as you know, you looked at shows like All in the Family or The Jeffersons. They had very few people, and their sets were the living room and the kitchen and maybe one other set. Right, right. We really broke ground on soap, having, as, having so many swing sets, sometimes five swing sets in a week, as opposed to none or one. Right. And having a running cast of how many? I mean, it, you know, oh. it, was, it was amazing Absolutely. every week that we, that we got it done and done so, so efficiently. Right, right. Are you aware where the name Soap came from, the title? 
I am not, but I can only guess that it was because it was a continuing story that it was, in the general sense, a soap opera because it was a continuing story, unlike any other sitcom on television. Right, right. Okay. What did you think when you first, did you actually end up typing the first pilot? I'm pretty sure I did because I was the only one there at the time. And on the pilot, I was, you know, pilots are more difficult, I think, than doing an entire series. Oh, yeah. Because everything on a pilot is an unknown. This director's never worked with these actors, who's never worked with this costumer, who's never worked with this director, who's never worked with these writers, you know, that kind of thing. And I remember I was the secretary. Right. So I assume I was part of that, but I don't have an exact election because I hate to tell you how long ago it was, but you already know, so we won't go yeah. into that. <laughs> <laughs> Were there, do you recall, I guess this kind of goes off of that, do you recall any particular changes that happened in the very beginning, or was it, to your knowledge, always going to be about two sisters and their and their different families? It was always going to be about two sisters and their different families, however, one thing I, you may or may not be aware of are the changes in the cast that we had. Yes. Before we got to Mary Campbell, who was played by Catherine Damon, we had two other Mary Campbells who we cast and actually shot, put right. on tape. Right. And then they were dismissed and recast, dismissed, recast, so we got to Catherine. Um, also, we had three Peter Campbells, before, two more before we got to Robert Urich. Right. So those were major changes. Now, with Catherine Damon's character, Mary Campbell, one of the sisters, I, I had heard that, that they had reshot, so they actually went back and reshot her scenes. So the people in those scenes ended up shooting them three times. Right. Um, do you remember what what it was in particular, the reason why they had to recast that role? It just didn't feel right? Well, it just I've, wasn't right? I can tell you, over my career, I've... I've worked on almost 400 episodes of network television, sitcom television, and I cannot tell you how many times I've produced a pilot that we get into rehearsing with the with all the actors that have just been cast, mm -hmm. and two days in or even three days in, the lead actor is replaced. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes even the second actor is replaced the day after that. Right. So it just, it, you know, one thing I realized uh, that when you cast a show, Normally, whoever's, in, whoever's casting the final person after the casting director's gone through what they go through and they bring the finals to the producers, the producers are sitting in an office, sometimes a conference room, and the actors come in and read. Right, okay? right. But think of it this way. The actors, you'll never see those actors in that situation again. Sure, sure. In a conference room or an office. Right. So then you take that same actor and you put them on an enormous stage with four cameras in their face and a whole lot of people, plus 300 people in a live audience, right. and things can change. Right, sure, <laughs> sure. You can imagine. Well, and sometimes, I'm sure, sometimes the performances get better, and sometimes the performances, they aren't the same, and any particular magic that, was, that you might have seen in the casting room might just not be there anymore for whatever reason. Right. Well, I've, I've also discovered that there are some actors and actresses who just shine and come to life with an audience when they hear the laughs, yes. and others that are completely threatened and intimidated by it. This, so the same thing with Peter Campbell, Robert Urich's character? Right. Okay. 
Were there any characters other than those two that were particularly difficult to cast? Do you have any idea? Oh, I can I can tell you exactly who was the most difficult to cast, and that was the part of Benson. It took six months, as I recall, to cast that character. And they went from from reading all kinds of guys to then saying, gee, maybe we should change it to a female. And then they read all kinds of females. And it was, I think, the day of or the day before, maybe the week of at the very most, mm -hmm. that they cast Robert Guillaume, who came out from New York as Benson. I had heard somewhere that the role of Jessica had been quite difficult to cast. Do you recall that at all? I have. I really don't. Okay. I was not in the casting room because I was so low on the totem pole in sure, those days. Sure. I really don't remember, but boy, what a great choice they made. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's hard to imagine anyone else in that role. I know, and it the, really is. And the two sisters, really, you know, Catherine Damon and Catherine Hellman, the two sisters, they gelled so well and were just so different from one another. And you completely bought that they were sisters. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Even though they were so very, very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any knowledge about the unusual theme song? It's not like a lot of theme songs of the day. Well, I think everything about Soap was unusual. Yeah. And they hired their composer, George Tipton, mm -hmm. and I'm sure they gave him some direction as far as a theme, meaning we want it lighthearted as opposed to soap opera-ish, right. which is very dramatic and melodramatic, and that's what they got. And he went on to do almost all of their, a lot of, most of their shows after that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I've heard mention of the Bible, yes. which was essentially, it's my understanding, that it was essentially a guideline for what was going to happen throughout the season. Is that accurate? It's actually a guideline for what happened to this series. Okay. And I think, I'm not positive, you'd have to ask Susan, but I think by the time we got to year three, she had even forgotten that she'd written a Bible. She, They were on such a roll of what they were doing that um, I don't know if they ever actually referred to the Bible. I think it was. it may have been a selling tool originally for the network to say this is okay. how the show is going to go, this is where things are going to lead, this person is going to be turn out to be this person's father. You know, typical, wonderful soap opera stuff, only better. And funnier, of course. Yeah. Obviously, the show was very controversial in its day before anybody basically saw it. Right. Do you remember um, anything about the controversy? Did it affect you personally in any way? I can tell you that we were at a studio in Hollywood, and we actually had picketers outside our offices wow. before the show went on the air. And we used to keep our curtains closed for fear that somebody might throw something through our window because our, our offices, many of our offices, looked right onto the street. I can also tell you and would like to tell you a great story about the controversy. Please. Which was I was working late one night. And I don't know, I was either the only person left or there was a couple of people anyway. The phone rang, the, the regular office phone, and I picked it up. And a man said to me, I'd like the address uh, where I can send a letter to protest the show soap. And, you know, I'd had a long day. And I thought, I don't know this guy. He doesn't know me. I have nothing to lose. So I'm just going to go for it. And I said to him, I'd be happy to give you the address so you can write a letter, but can I ask you a question first? Sure, he said. I said, have you ever seen the show? He said, no. I said, how come? He said, well, it's not on the air yet. 
I said, then why are you writing a letter? He said, well, because I've heard A, B, C, and D. I said, okay. So in other words, you're a person who makes a judgment call based on what somebody else is telling you rather than observing for yourself and coming to your own conclusions. Is that correct? And he said, well, and he started to stutter. You know? <laughs> and I said, look, I don't care if you write a letter. You, uh, you can write all the letters you want. I mean, it's called changing the channel if you don't like it. There's lots of other choices. But I have a hard problem wondering why it is that you're believing somebody about something when you can't honestly say to me you watched it and you don't like it based on your personal opinion. Right. And I talked to this guy for like 15 minutes. Wow. And at the end of it, he said, you know, I totally agree with you. I'm going to wait till the show airs and then make my own decision. I said, that's all I'm asking. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> but you see, that's the problem is that people... You know, there's somebody who has a louder voice than anybody else, so everyone else who thinks they don't have a loud voice says, oh, well, if he says it, then it must be true. Right, right. And I always, ha I personally have always had a problem with that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely ridiculous that so many people were up in arms and they were writing news, you know, newspaper articles and magazine articles and picketing about something that they hadn't even seen. Just Right. I can also tell you that once the show started to air, right. I went back to, to Phoenix, where I had spent some of my life, Scottsdale and Phoenix, and I had worked in local television in Phoenix for a couple of years, and of course, after a couple of years of that, in a very conservative state at the time, especially, mm -hmm. I um, knew that I had to come to Los Angeles to further my goals, but I went back, and I will never forget meeting or seeing a guy that I knew from my Phoenix television days who was the head of the NBC affiliate in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And I said to him with such pride, guess what I'm doing now? I'm living in Hollywood and I'm working on the new show Soap. Isn't that great? And he said to me, I wouldn't let my grandmother watch that show. And it was at that exact moment that I realized and I've lived with this ever since, that it doesn't matter to me what somebody else thinks about what I mm -hmm. do. I'm, if I enjoy my job and I'm happy and I'm proud of what I do, if he doesn't like it, it doesn't affect me. Right. But I was so taken aback by this, that, um, but it taught me a very valuable yeah, lesson. absolutely. Did it seem like ABC was ever getting cold feet or, or would cave into the pressure prior to the show debuting? I really was not privy to those conversations, and I always commended them for sticking up for us and giving us almost carte blanche, not completely, but almost to what we wanted to do. Right. And it was, to my knowledge, the end of the fourth year when they actually did cave to the pressure of the moral majority who said, we're pulling all our advertising, we're going to boycott everything. Uh, well, they didn't have advertising. We're going to boycott all the advertisers yes. if you don't take that show off the air, and that's how the show went off the air. Are there any plot lines that you didn't particularly care for or that you thought might have been better with a different actor or, or something like that? Um, you know, we had a couple of guest star actors mm -hmm. who didn't work out, and therefore, as a result, they were supposed to be recurring characters. Right. And we didn't like them. Okay. So it's the power of the pen. They disappeared. Sure. With one line of writing, right. which which was pretty great, right? And 
I remember one person in particular who I won't, you know, name, but I remember one plot line that was supposed to go one way and completely went and the opposite way because of exactly that. Okay. And of course, there was no recasting that person because that person had already been introduced. Right. Um, could you talk a little bit about what your day-to-day work like was? Did it follow the kind of the same structure, or was it the type of job that was different every day? And obviously, your role changed as time went on. Right. Right. My role did change from the first year I was Susan's secretary, and that was that job. The second season, I was fortunate enough to become the script supervisor. So I was on stage every day, all day, Uh, which was just a phenomenal experience because I was working not only with the most incredible writers, but the best actors, but also the best director, who I believe still to this day is the best director, Jay Sandrich. Absolutely. So I got to watch his method of doing things and learn. And his associate director at the time, who went on to be a director, J.D. Lobu, was an unbelievable associate director. So I got to be around all this enormous talent and just absorb everything from them, which is what I believe later in my career, which is um, I became very proficient in post-production as well as production. And I attribute it all to my experience on soap. So the third year, when Benson got spun off, I went back up to the office. And because I had been with soap in the beginning since the pilot, I really knew so much more about the show than people who hadn't been there at the beginning. Right, So we started, you won't believe this, but, you know, Soap was a very complicated show to do with so many actors and so many swing sets and so many guest stars, and sometimes we had a lot of extras. And the third and fourth year, especially the fourth year, we never shot one episode in order. So in other words, I used to keep a board in my office behind curtains so that the cast wouldn't see it. Mm -hmm. And I had giant index cards, like five by seven index cards that had each scene. Let's say it said episode 75 at the top. And then underneath that, going down in a line where each card represented a scene. Okay. At the bottom of the card, it would say to air in... So be episode 75, shot in episode 80. Yes. So every episode of the fourth year was shot out of order. It was up to me to figure it all out and keep it in order amongst everything else I was doing. Right. So we were on such a roll by the time the fourth year, the third and fourth years came along. that, And the writing was so spectacular that unlike many shows today, who have rewrites every single day and even up to the shoot day. Right. We would rehearse in the morning, have a run through in the afternoon for three days a week, and then on the fourth day, you bring in all the equipment, the engineering, the ENGs, as we called it, with all the cameras, the lights, everything. We would even have, which was typical in those days, on the first camera blocking day, we would have a dress run through where the cast would put on their wardrobe for the show so we right. could see it on camera and the and executives could say yes or no it works doesn't work right today there that would be absolutely unheard of yeah. because they're so busy rewriting everything that wardrobe is one of the last things they worry about sure, sure. so then after shooting the show or after uh, camera blocking the show we would you know go through camera blocking again on the fifth day but we would start a little bit later, r- run through the show once, and then 
break to put everybody in makeup and wardrobe. And while that's happening, we would bring in the first audience. Mm -hmm. Then the warm-up guy would start his warm-up, and then we would shoot the show just straight through, no stopping, unless we absolutely had to. Then Then we would dismiss the first audience. And while we were changing tape, because we were shooting on two-inch videotape in those days, right. we would get the cast and crew together to have notes and a meal. So if a line wasn't working, we could change it. If a blocking wasn't working, they could change it. So it was just general notes, little notes, little tweaking here and there. Right. And meanwhile, we're bringing in the second audience. And then we would shoot the show again in front of the second audience, but we would do more after we'd run the scene, we would go back and pick up a line or go back and pick up the scene again in front of the audience and try to do it as quickly as possible. Right. So it, it was quite something. But I have to tell you, on soap, I would say an average, I worked an average of 60 hours a week in five days and many times 70 hours. Wow. And, of course, don't forget there were the, there were the retrospectives that we did, the 90-minute re- retrospectives that were yes. done before the season. And I was part of what we called the retro team. There were four of us that used to put put that show together based on what Susan would write as the thread taking you through the whole thing. And I remember, right. I think it was just before the fourth season, our first cut of the retro was four hours long. So oh. we had to cut it down and cut it down and cut it down. Also, what was fun for me, I can't remember if it started in the third season or the fourth season, but one of my jobs became... I would rec- I would record the recap and tag with Rod Roddy. Oh, okay. And we would go in- we would go into recording booth with the script that Susan had written, the recap and tag, and I would take him through it and record it till I was happy, and then that's what would we would take the best takes of each line and edit it together and put it on the air. Wow! Wow! How incredible! Yeah, it was great. Oh my goodness! Um, in terms of the sets. Were there any sets that were always standing? I don't think that there was one set that stood all the time because there might be a set that stayed for two or three weeks in a row, maybe even more. might have been one of the kitchens or probably not the living room. would have been one of the kitchens. But, you know, we we had one set that took up the entire stage, which was the scene when Bert was walking through the field and got t- it was the cliffhanger of what was it season one when he got taken away mm. by the aliens season two cliffhanger. season two so he's standing in the he's walking muttering to himself as he was so good at doing and <laughs> came up next to his truck and as he put his hand on the handle of the truck the door the truck started up by itself and he did his what's happening what's happening and a beam of light came down on him and he looked up and disappeared that right, right. Thing. That that set took up an entire stage for him to wow. walk through doing his talking. Wow. Yeah, I it's remember amazing. that. How you talked about the audience bringing the audience in, and obviously, you know, with the show being you know shot many weeks ahead of time before the audience would see it, mm-hmm. how was the audience brought up to date on what was going on? Were they just kind of given little recaps? Uh, That's a good question. What do I remember about that? We may have actually played back something to them to bring them up to date. Or the the warm-up guy may have just told them what what was going on. Right, right. That's a good question that I actually don't remember the answer to. 
do you recall what went on be- between the shooting of scenes? Um, there was a warm-up guy, so did he come in and entertain the audience between scenes to right. keep them going? Right. That's what a warm-up okay. guy does, is he tries to keep them from getting up and being and leaving. So, <laughs> And believe it or not, I don't know if you ever watched the Food Channel, but there's a show that's been on the Food Channel almost since the beginning called Unwrapped. It's hosted mm-hmm. by a great guy named Mark Summers, who has a lot to do with the Food Channel. He has several shows, that being one of them. Mark was yeah. my warm-up guy on Soap. Oh, for the for the entire run? No. He was, okay. I think, mostly for the last couple of years. We okay. had several people, but um, he was definitely one of the mainstay guys who I just oh, adored. Wow. And then now look at him. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. He's a very busy guy. I mean, you, yes. he's he's had a lot of shows over the years. Yes, on Nickelodeon especially, where he, he really launched his career. <clears throat> yeah, Excuse me. yeah. And then he's a big wig at, um, on all the stuff. Excuse me, that he does at the Food Channel now. Right. Could I play a little name association with you? I'll, I'll mention a name and just tell me what you know. Some some thoughts you might have about that person. Okay. Okay. Uh, Catherine Hellmond. Really, really talented. Catherine had the best laugh in the world, and we had a blooper on the show. It was in the fourth, was it the fourth season? It was when, um, no, third season, when Corinne was going to give birth. And okay, they yeah. were all in the waiting room. Well, Jessica, Mary, uh, Eunice, Corinne, Benson, and Billy were in the waiting room. And it was very late at night. We were shooting the second show, and... Robert Guillaume kept laughing every time Billy, who was played by Jimmy Bayo, opened right. his mouth. And they could not get to the scene, and it was late. And Jessica's, she just, Catherine Hellman, actually, just started laughing and couldn't stop. And then, and then Jennifer Salt, who played Eunice, started laughing. And I just remember that very, very clearly. Also the fact that all of the Jessica character's clothes were custom-made for her. Oh, she had a great wardrobe. Yes, she did, thanks oh. to Judy Evans, who designed everything. Jessica obviously changed quite a bit from the beginning of the show to the end. I mean, she was one of the few characters that really, well, actually, they all kind of matured. Most of them matured in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, any thoughts on, on the maturity of, of Jessica? Well, you know, she she had put up with a lot from Chester. Mm-hmm. And I think what happened was, First, she had a love affair, kind of, with um, the detective played by John Finer. Right. And then she just, I think, just came into her own. And then, of course, after she was arrested for Peter Campbell's murder, she she even got a little more mature. And then what was so great is how all these characters kept falling in love with her. If you yes. remember, not only the detective fell in love with her, but her lawyer, Mr. Right. Malou. He right. fell in love with her. The doctor, played yes. by Granville Van Dusen, he fell in love with her. Right. And uh, which reminds me of another very funny blooper that happened when she was supposedly dying in the hospital, and Grant sure. and, some, and something happened that was so funny, and the audience went absolutely crazy, and Granville Van Dusen could not finish the scene, and yet with all this laughing, she laid in bed like she was dead. She never moved, <laughs> never opened her eyes, nothing. She, I don't know how she did it, but they, they tried the scene three or four times, and the laughing was just uncontrollable, and she never opened her eyes. 
obviously very committed to the character, very <laughs> committed. <laughs> um, it was really great. Oh, that's wonderful. Catherine Damon, any thoughts about her? Well, Catherine Damon was a very serious actress. And in her own life, which I don't, really don't know too much about, I wasn't privy to it, but Catherine was just very, very serious. But she, the thing I remember most just about her character is any time she and Jessica Tate were in a scene together, it was nothing short of riveting. And I remember one scene in particular with the two of them when they were having lunch together in a restaurant, and Mary... Mm -hmm spots Chester nuzzling another woman yes, and tries yes. to protect Jessica from seeing it. Yes, in season and here one. And was a scene that you went from laughing to you're absolutely sobbing with this woman. And that was the beauty of Susan Harris. Oh, absolutely. Absolute genius that you could yes. go from one thing to another. Yes. Oh, so in a In a moment, in a sentence. It, just astonishing. Absolutely. And you know what? You don't see much of that these days. No, no. In half-hour television that where it's literally compelling and in some cases life-changing as in the character of uh, Jody, played by Billy Crystal. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, can you tell me a little bit about Billy Crystal? Well, I can tell you that Billy was a lot of fun to be around because he's a comedian. Right. And as a comedian, one night... We had a, a mechanical, technical rather, prog problem in front of the audience. We had a tape malfunction or camera malfunction or something like that. And we were down for 45 minutes, which is, oh, you know, death yeah. in front of an audience. Sure. But get this. In those 45 minutes, Billy Crystal came out and entertained, and Jay Johnson, who was the ventriloquist, came out and entertained. Wow. And it was just magical that that happened and of course the character he played was fairly groundbreaking in many ways were you aware at the time of of any problems he was having playing the character i know he got i've read instances where you know people were sending some epithets his way and whatnot because jody was gay do you recall anything about that about I was not privy to that, but I'm not surprised because we seem to live in a world where people judge other people just by yeah. who they want to be. Right. And people judge other people who are unlike themselves and say, well, you're not like me, so you must be wrong. Right. But I will tell you that people's lives were changed because of that character for the positive. Absolutely. And for the really wonderfully positive. I can tell you specifically that there was a scene between the Billy character and his and the Danny character, his brother, played by Ted Watt, mm -hmm. in which Ted, Billy was telling him, I believe it was episode 11 in the first season, where Billy was saying, talking about wanting his sex change operation. Yes. And Danny said, but you can't be gay. You're my brother, and I'm not gay, so you can't be gay. Of course, all the stereotypical yes. things that everybody thinks of, and Billy's character said, but but I am gay. And Danny said, but you're too good in sports. Right. And Billy said, have you ever seen me with a girl? And Danny said, you're shy. You're just shy. <laughs> and then Danny just stood there and he said, why? And Jody said, look, 
I'm still the brother who goes bowling with you, and I'm still the brother who studies with you. Yes. And I'm still the brother who counts on you. And if you don't love me now because of this, then you never loved me at all. And the letters that we got after that show aired from parents saying, you changed my life, I get it now. Absolutely. Was worth all the controversy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can I can see that. And I and I totally remember that scene. And by the way, I just saw Billy Crystal about 3 weeks ago. And cuz coincidentally we get our hair cut by the same person. Ah. <laughs> and it was just great seeing him and you know, he's such a baseball Yankees fan and Yes. And I talked I just I just talked baseball with him cuz I like baseball too and it was just great seeing him again his daughter was getting married and we were saying how could that even be possible that he's a grandfather now and you know it's just not even possible but it was just great seeing him about three weeks ago oh that's wonderful And we're going to stop right there with this edition of the podcast. But don't worry, there's much more to come, and you won't have to wait long to hear it. In the next episode of the podcast, Marsha and I finish up talking about soap. We briefly talk about some of the other series that she's worked on, and then we talk for a while about another fan favorite from her resume, The Golden Girls. And I'll be releasing that podcast in the next couple days. As always, I enjoy hearing from you either feedback on the podcast or any questions you might have. You can send them to podcast at tvseriesfinale.com. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so for free. There's feed information on the website, or you can go to the iTunes store and search for TV Series Finale, and you'll find us under the free podcast. If you like the show and would like to support it, please leave a review on iTunes. And by doing that, you help promote the show and help other people to find it, which helps keep it going. And, of course, don't forget to visit the tvseriesfinale.com website for the latest cancellation news, renewals, petitions, last episodes, and reunion information for your favorite shows. I'm Trevor Kimball, and until next time, stay tuned.